We begin tonight at Job chapter 15. And as we do, it's helpful for us just to sort of go back to the very beginning, at least just with a brief summary, so we understand how Job chapter 15 fits into the the context of the entire book. Job was a man who was outstanding in his godliness. Uh, Not only did the Bible itself tell us that he was an upright and blameless man, but God speaking from heaven in heaven said that Job was an upright and a blameless man. And we dare not forget that through the book of Job. Because as the discussion rages all around Job throughout the book, it's easy to forget exactly what God's estimation of this man was. Well, this upright and blameless man was beset by unbelievable catastrophe and challenge in his life. And this great challenge that came into his life came from the fact that that God and Satan were having a heavenly dispute about Job one that he was blind to, and one that, of course, the the people around him were blind to. But there was actually sort of a wager between God and Satan having to do with this man Job. Basically, Satan said that Job served God only for a mercenary motive, because God had to bribe him for Job's praise and Job's attention. And and it seems that, that, that Satan was absolutely convinced that if these blessings, if this reward was taken away from Job, then Job would curse God to his face. Well, the, the, the attack came upon Job in two successive waves. In the first wave, he lost his ten dear children. He lost all of his financial wealth, and, and he was just left with nothing. In the second wave of attack that came upon him, he lost his health. And you might say that there was a third wave of attack that came upon him from his friends. Because when Job was there afflicted with this terrible bodily disease, uh, this, this skin affliction that had covered his entire body, there is an utter pain and discomfort sitting upon an ash heap out at the city dump. He had three friends named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar who came to comfort him. And when they came to comfort him, it was great. They just sat with him for seven days in silence, just there in common communion with Job, communing with him in the midst of his misery. But at the end of those seven days, Job spoke. Always remember that. In this contention, in this battling between Job and his friends, in defense of his friends, I'll say Job started it. Because Job started it with what he said in Job chapter 3, where he poured out this agonizing, agonizing, painful lament about how hopeless his life was, how he would be better off dead or better off if he were never born. And it was in response to that agonized cry that his friends began to criticize him. And they sort of did it in rounds. First it was Eliphaz, then it was Bildad, then it was Zophar. And Job had answered each one of those almost in a round. Now here at chapter 15, we begin, as it were, the second round of discussions. Zophar, excuse me, uh, Eliphaz had his chance to speak, and Job responded. Bildad has his chance to speak, and Job responded. Zophar had his chance to speak, and Job responded. Now, Eliphaz is going to speak the second time, and Job will respond to him. And basically, that's what we're going to concern ourselves with tonight. Chapters 15, 16, and 17, where uh, Eliphaz speaks a second time, and Job responds to him. So let's jump into it. Job chapter 15, beginning here at verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a man answer with, excuse me, should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? 
Yes, you cast off fear and restrain your prayer before God. For your iniquity reach, teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. Now again, I, it's a little too bad that we can't have a marathon teaching session and teach through the entire book of Job in one setting. Because it really is a book where you have to be in touch with the flow of the arguments as it continues through. Eliphaz is speaking in reaction to things that have been previously said. And basically, this is the, 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 the gist of the discussion as it's gone on before. Job agonized and, and, and let out his lament in chapter 3. Eliphaz criticized him and said, Job, you shouldn't speak such. What you really need to do is repent and get right with God, and God will bless you again. That was the basic position of Job's friends, that Job's problem was caused by some special, though hidden, sin in his life. And what Job needed to do, therefore, was repent of that sin and get right with God. They saw uh, the calamity that came upon Job as punishment for sin in his life. And so the solution is obvious, right? If you're being punished for sin, what should you do? You should confess and repent and get right with God. And that was their consistent counsel. Well, Job frustrated his friends because he absolutely would not admit to some special sin. Now, please take care. Job did not claim to be sinless. Job was not claiming some, some status of sinless perfection before his friends. Not at all. But at the same time, he would not deny what he was. And we know that what he was was true. He was a blameless and upright man. God himself said it from heaven. And Job wouldn't deny it. I have to confess, I probably would have broken down much sooner than Job. I would have just said, all right, you know what? Just to stop this argument, all right, I'm a big fat sinner, and that's why all this came upon me. There, are you guys happy? I'll repent. But Job was so steadfast in his integrity. He would not say that he was some kind of special or conspicuous sinner when he was not. This frustrated his friends to no end. And believe me, as the discussion went on, it got nastier and nastier. And here we see Eliphaz basically being nasty to Job. What does he say right there in verse 2? Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge? Hey, Job, I am not impressed with your eloquent dependence upon God as you have uh, previously expressed in the previous chapters. Instead, life has responded with a very sharp rebuke of Job. He accused him, notice here, of empty knowledge, and then going on, of unprofitable talk and having cast off fear. Job, you don't fear God anymore. You see, we've got to notice this. As Job becomes more intense, more vehement in his arguments, so do his friends. And as the discussion gets more heated, it, it also becomes more coarse. I don't want to get into the intricacies of the ancient Hebrew here, but it's possible that, that, that Eliphaz is using very coarse language in verses 2 and 3 that would actually refer to, to flatulence or gas problems. He's saying, Job, your, your speaking is just like gas coming from somebody. I don't want to hear it. Then he goes on in verse 3, or by speeches with which he can do no good. Eliphaz sought to discourage Job from his own self-defense. Job, it's not doing any good. We don't believe you. We aren't listening to you. You are not persuading us. But then notice what he says in verse 4. He accuses Job, he says, and restrain prayer before God. Now, I have to say, Eliphaz was wrong in his judgment of Job. 
Though Eliphaz could not see Job's secret prayer life, we know, because we know Job chapters 1 and 2, right? And his friends didn't. We know that Job was a man of piety and a man of prayer. It's very clearly demonstrated in Job chapter 1. So Eliphaz wrongly accused Job of being a hypocrite and of restraining prayer in his life. And then notice what he says here in verse 6. He says, your own mouth condemns you and not I. Job, you're just condemning yourself more and more every time you speak. Now remember why this was the case. Because in the perspective of Job's friends, the only words Job should speak were words of humble repentance for the sin that put him into this place. Every word that you say that isn't humble repentance, you're just digging your hole deeper and deeper. Repent now before it gets worse. That's the whole attitude of Eliphaz and the three friends of Job towards him. He goes on here now in verse, uh, starting at verse 7, I should say. He says, are you the first man who was born? (laughs) Or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that's not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you, and the word gently spoken with you? Why then does your heart carry you away, and what do your eyes wink at, that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth? You see what he says very powerfully here? (laughs) Job, were, were you made before the hills? I find this fascinating because later on when you get into the book, into Job's chapter 38 and 39, God is finally going to come down and speak to Job and the whole situation. It's absolutely fascinating how this happens. God allows the discussion to get completely exhausted among men. Job speaks. Then there's a round of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Then there's a second round, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Then there's a third round, Eliphaz, Bildad, and then it just stops. It's exhausted among the three friends. They got nothing more to say. And then Job speaks for about three chapters, you know, defending himself and giving a very stirring conclusion to his argument, so to speak. And then another guy comes along, a guy named Elihu. And Elihu speaks. Four, five, six chapters he speaks. He drones on and on and on. Elihu, oh, you got to get a load of this guy. We'll, We'll talk about him in later chapters. But then finally, after everything has been exhausted, then God speaks. And you know what's fascinating about it? When God finally speaks, he speaks very much like Eliphaz does right here in these first few verses, uh, verses 7 and 8. Eliphaz asked him, were you made before the hills? You see, both God in Job chapters 38 and 39 and Eliphaz here in Job chapter 15 argued and appealed to Job to consider that he didn't know as much as he thought he did. But here's what's fascinating. What Eliphaz thought that Job didn't know was entirely different than what God knew Job didn't know. Did you follow me on that? Let me repeat that because it's a little confusing. Eliphaz thought Job didn't know something. Job, you just don't know how wicked you are and what you really need to do is repent of this. You don't know how futile it is, your attempts to resist God on this. That's what Eliphaz thought Job didn't know. What God knew Job didn't know was the whole scenario that was hidden to Job but was known to us in Job chapters 1 and 2. That there was actually a very good reason for all of Job's affliction that he could not see. 
And so it's interesting, both Eliphaz and God appeal to this whole idea, were you made before the hills? And then he goes on here in verse 9, and what do you know that we don't know? Job couldn't claim to be the first man who was born, nor Job couldn't claim that he was made before the hills, or Job couldn't claim that he had heard the counsel of God. But listen, Job could claim to know more than his friends did in the situation. You see, Job's friends knew, and I use that very advisedly, they knew in their own minds at least that Job was a particular and notorious sinner who needed to repent. Job knew that he was not. And you know what? Job was right. Job was right in this situation. That, the, that there must be some other reason for the calamity that beset the life of Job. And so he goes on, notice here in verse 11, he says, are the consolations of God too small for you? Now listen to this. Eliphaz considered the consolations of God to be the hard advice that he and his friends had for Job. Job, we're bringing you the consolation of God, and that's the message that you're a terrible sinner that needs to repent. Eliphaz assumed that if Job rejected their advice, he was rejecting the consolations of God. Therefore, he thought that Job had turned his spirit against God. And he said, Job, stop doing this. I want you to know this. Job was not rejecting God's consolations because here's the problem. Job's friends were not bringing him God's consolations. Job's friends were bringing him human wisdom that applies to the situation in 95% of the times. No, probably 96%. No, probably 99.5% of the time. But it did not apply to Job's situation. Eliphaz thought that by rejecting their counsel, he was rejecting the consolations of God, but he was not. But I will want you to consider this idea, though. Isn't it true that many people do reject the consolations of God? Isn't it true that many, a hurting soul, God brings his consolations to, those, to that soul, and yet they refuse to receive it? The, the, the consolations of God are, are rich, are heavy, especially on this side of the new covenant. And there are some people who consider that the consolations of God, just like it says there in verse 11, are too small for them. But listen, the consolations of God are not small. If you'll understand the Bible, if you understand God's message of hope and comfort and goodness for you, the consolations of God are not too small for you. Well, here life as is going to go on, beginning here at verse 14. He says, and what is man that he could be pure? And who is born of woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints, and if the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. Do, do you see what Eliphaz is doing here? You see, Job and his friends have already argued over this point because they were accusing Job of claiming to be sinlessly perfect. And Job never made such a claim. Job simply claimed that he was not a conspicuous sinner and that it was not sin that brought all this calamity, all this catastrophe into his life. What Eliphaz is trying to do is he's trying to say, Job, he's putting his arm around Job at this point. Job, we're all sinners. Come on. There's no shame in you admitting that you're human. It's okay for you to admit that you're just like all of us, a great big sinner, and that's why all this has come upon you. He says, how much less is man who is abominable and filthy? Job, it's okay for you to understand that we're all like this. 
You can admit that it's because of your sin that this has come upon you. The problem was this. In the integrity of Job's heart, he could not say this. Well, life as continues on here, verse 17. He says, I will tell you, hear me, what I have seen I will declare, what wise men I have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no alien passed among them. The wicked man rise with pain all his days, and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness, for a sword is waiting for him. He wanders about for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle, for he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. Now, I want you to notice, especially the words there in verse 17. Eliphaz says an idea that has been repeated before. He says, what I have seen, I will declare what wise men have told. You see, again, Job's friends, here specifically Eliphaz, is appealing to the idea of tradition and appealing to the idea of all wise people know this. You see, and he's simply speaking in terms of cause and effect associations between human wickedness and received judgment. In other words, it's a very simple equation in the mind of a life as in Job's friends. If a person has a life that's falling apart, if they've received great catastrophe in their life, well, they're under the judgment of God. And since God is righteous and fair, if they're under the judgment of God, they must be a conspicuous, they must be a terrible sinner. Because God is righteous, right? It's cause and effect. Your, your, your life is cursed? Well, it's because you deserve to be cursed because you're especially wicked. It all made a lot of sense to Job's friends. The only problem was you know and I know and everybody who reads Job chapters 1 and 2 knows it wasn't true in Job's case. It had nothing to do. Job wasn't a target of all the calamity that came in his life because of his wickedness. You and I know what? That he was a target of all the calamity that came in his life because of his righteousness. It's because he was blameless and upright that this particular challenge came into his life. And so this is completely out of the frame of mind of Job's friends to conceive of. But what do they rely on? Well, the conventional wisdom, the traditional things that are known. And so he says, what I've seen I'll declare and what wise men have told. And then he goes on to verse 20. The, the, the wicked man rides in pain all his days. Job, it's only the wicked who suffer as you do. You are suffering great pain. And by the way, we looked at Job's medical chart a few weeks ago. You go through the book of Job and you see all what it says about Job's physical condition. He was writhing in pain for weeks over his affliction. Job, you're suffering great pain. Therefore, you must be one of the wicked. The sooner you confess this and repent of this, the better it will be of you. Now again, notice verse 25. He stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty. Now did Eliphaz say specifically that this was Job? No. He said, those wicked people, that's what they do. But clearly he's putting Job in that group of wicked people. 
by association, Eliphaz clearly accuses Job of this kind of arrogance and defilement, of virtually attacking God himself. Notice what it says there uh, at, at the end there, verse 26. He says, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. Do you see a man fighting against God with a shield, running against God? That's what Eliphaz thinks that Job is. But it's not going to work. Look at verse 27. Though he has covered his face with his fatness and made his waist heavy with fat, he dwells in desolate cities, in houses which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Let, let him not trust the futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like a vine and cast off the blossom like an olive tree. For the company of hypocrites will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. I want you to notice something. Here, Eliphaz describes what is, in his view, the, the certainty of God's judgment against the wicked. Now, you look at the profile of the wicked to begin with in verses 27 and 28, and what is, he's covered his face with fatness and made his waist heavy with fat. Now, you and I read that and we go, well, poor guy, you know, he's fat. He needs to go on a diet or something. Well, in the ancient world, this was a person to be admired, right? I mean, they had more than what you absolutely needed to, to, to live to survive. A, a fat guy was a wealthy guy, a prosperous guy. In another way, it's Eliphaz's way of saying, he's doing great, he's wealthy, he's prosperous. He's covered his face with fatness and made his waist heavy with fat. But then look at it there, he dwells in desolate cities. You see, a, a life has very poetically explained here that the wicked man may seem to succeed for a while. Like you, Job. Oh yeah, everything was great in your life for a while. But it's that way with a lot of wicked people, Job. One day it comes crashing down upon them, just like it came crashing down upon you. They're actually lonely, poor, and in darkness. And Job, doesn't that look like you right about now? Now listen, there, there was wisdom in Eliphaz's description of the ungodly and their destiny, right? Isn't it true? That, that many times the ungodly prosper and God brings them down at some time. Isn't that true? Of course it's true. We see it reflected in the Bible. We see it reflected in our own eyes. What Eliphaz says is true in many cases. The problem was it's not always true, and it certainly didn't explain Job's situation. And I'll use the metaphor that I've been using all through this. It's as if there was a curtain between heaven and earth. Now, you and I were given the gift of seeing behind that curtain into heaven and saw what happened in the heavenly realms in Job chapters 1 and 2. We know why this came upon Job, but uh, Job and his friends, they could not see behind that curtain. And in their, their attempt to just make sense of it in their own way, they failed utterly. Look at what it says here in verse 35. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. In his indirect manner, Eliphaz accused Job of all kinds of sins, including hypocrisy, bribery, troublemaking, and lying. Job, you're this bad. You need to repent. 
I like what Adam Clark says about Job at this point. You can just imagine. Now, again, as I, I say, the, the attacks came upon Job in three waves. In the first day, when God allowed Satan to do more than Satan had ever done before, he, he took away all Job's wealth and Job's ten children. Then in the second day, he took away Job's health. Everything was gone. Job's health was absolutely shattered. And his own wife turned against him. So that was the first attack, his, his children and his wealth. His second attack was his wealth and his wife. The third attack was the attack of his friends. His friends just kept bearing down upon him. And as I said before, I like what Adam Clark says about this. He says, poor Job. What a fight of affliction he had to contend with. His body wasted and tortured with sore disease. His mind harassed by Satan. And a heart wrung with the unkindness and false accusations of his friends. No wonder he was greatly agitated, often distracted, and sometimes even thrown off his guard. However, all his enemies were chained. And beyond that chain they could not go. God was his unseen protector and did not suffer his faithful servant to be greatly moved. I mean, before we get into Job's response here in chapters 16 and 17, let's just remind ourselves, here is Job. He's lost everything, everything in his life. Shouldn't we remind ourselves at the end of the book of Job? He has everything, not just restored, but more so. I'll say what I said at the beginning of the book. Job was a good man at the beginning of the book, he was a better man at the end. Job was a blessed man at the beginning of the book. He's a more blessed man at the end of the book. Job was a wealthy man at the beginning of the book. He's a more wealthy man at the end of the book. And even though he had to go through this intense, crazy season of utter deprivation and darkness, God used it to build something better in Job's life than he had before. Well, Verse 16, or excuse me, chapter 16. Let's see how Job responds to Eliphaz in the second round. You've got to love this first one. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that answer? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. I mean, don't you read that and just immediately identify with Job? <laughs> you know, I've heard a lot of this kind of talk. He says, I've heard many such things. You know, listen, you critics of mine, you're just giving me the traditional wisdom. You're giving me the conventional wisdom over and over again. All you can say to me is, Job, everybody knows these things. And Job says, but you don't know my case. He's saying, you're telling me nothing new. And then in verse 2, very powerful. Miserable comforters are you all. Job hoped that this reproach of his critics would shame his accusers into seeing just how greatly they had failed to help Job. You see, they were too confident in their own wisdom, and it made them unable to properly sympathize with Job at all. You know, let me tell you something. His friends did much better with Job when they simply sat with him in silence for those seven days and were just there with him. Now again, as I said before, I want to cut his friends a little bit of slack. 
Because they did make that outstanding gesture of friendship and just sitting with him. And as I said before, let's not forget, Job started it, right? Job started it with that agonized outcry in chapter 3. But still, the friend should have had a heart to comfort him. And John Trapp, the old Puritan commentator, he, he attempted to sort of catch the, 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 the idea of Job's complaint here. This is what he said, quote, You charge me for slighting the consolations of God and pretend to come purposely to comfort me. But such cold comforters I've seldom met with. For instead of abating and allaying my sorrows, you do all you can to increase and heighten them. Is this your kindness to your friend? And so he says, look, you're miserable comforters to me. Verse 3, shall words of wind have an end? Will you guys just stop your windy speeches? Will you just stop condemning me with your piling of word upon word? But then in verses 4 and 5, he gets really to the point, doesn't he? I also could speak as you do. I could heap up words against you and shake my head against you. Job recognized that, that he could have been in the same unsympathetic place as his friends were towards him. And he also saw that his suffering had changed his perspective. And now he said, no, no, no. If I was in the same situation as you guys with me, I would instead strengthen and comfort other people. Shouldn't we say that this actually is one of the great advantages of personal suffering? One of the great advantages of personal suffering is that it makes the person who suffers far more sympathetic towards other people who suffer. I mean, this is almost a universal experience, right? Those who otherwise would have been much more harsh and much more strict towards those who are suffering often find themselves much more willing to give strength and comfort towards others when they suffer similar grief. And so now Job is going to vent a little more, starting at verse 6. He's going to lament the rejection that he felt from his friends, starting here at verse 6. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? Isn't that powerful right there? Job says, listen, if I speak, my grief isn't relieved. But, but if I remain silent, that doesn't help me either. I feel trapped by both options. If I speak, you guys give me no sympathy. I can't just let it out, but, but I can't hold it in either. You really sense how Job is trapped by this sense. Verse 7 now. But now he has worn me out. Now, you know who the he is there, right? That's the Lord. Let, let me just continue on in this passage all the way through verse 14 because it's very powerful. But now he has worn me out. You have made desolate all my company. You have shriveled me up. Now, I, again, I just want to say, the you there is God. Okay, remember, this, this is Job talking to God now. I, I do want to remind you, Curiously, Job's friends seem never to talk to God. They talk to Job. But Job both replies to his friends and talks to God. So let me start again at verse 7. And remember, he's talking to God here. But now he has worn me out. 
You have made desolate all my company. You have shriveled me up, and it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he shattered me. He has also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. Now here we have the sense that Job is close to just surrender to God Now he has worn me out. God, you've struggled with me. You win. You've stripped everything away from me and you've exhausted me. My exhausted condition, as he says here, is a witness against me. But then he goes on to talk about this conflict that he feels, how he feels attacked from God. Verse 9, he tears at me in his wrath and hates me. My adversary sharpens his gaze at me. And please understand, I've been talking tonight a lot about the conflict that Job has with his friends, but don't lose sight of this far more profound for Job than the conflict that he had with Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar was the conflict that he felt he had with God. What what distressed Job far more than losing his wealth then losing his children, then losing the comfort of his wife, then losing the, the, the friendship of his friends, then losing his own health, far more significant to him than any of those things, was losing his sense of fellowship with God. Look, I'll ask you this again. I brought it up in previous weeks, but I'll ask you, does anybody here think that this was the only crisis Job had ever endured in his life? Now, obviously, he had never endured something this severe, this much piled crisis upon crisis upon crisis. But listen, we all know that Job was a man just like him. He had endured crisis times before. Nothing is severe of this, of course, but some kind of crisis in a smaller way. And what did he know? He knew that God was there for him in the midst of it. You know what it's been like for you, right? You can have the world crumbling around you, but if you feel that the countenance of God is shining upon you from heaven, it's like, so what? Right? You you just, God's close to me. When God is close to you, it doesn't matter in the crisis. But when you're in the midst of the crisis and you feel that God hates you, who can bear it? And that's exactly where Job was at. Again, let me read it from verse 9. He tears at me with his wrath and hates me. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. Job felt that he was in a supreme conflict, not with his friends, not with circumstances, but with his God, or at least with his prior conception of God and how God worked things. His crisis threw all of that prior conception into uncertainty, and now he felt that he was under attack from God. Now, I will say this. There are some people who think that when Job says in verse 9, he tears at me in his wrath and hates me, there are some people who think that Job is speaking of Satan there. I don't think so. 
I can understand why commentators want to say that because it seems too extreme for us for us to say that Job felt like God hated him. But the context, I think, demands that Job felt like God hated him. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks at me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. You see, it is almost infinitely painful to Job that God is now without any explanation at all in Job's mind. God is now suddenly acting like his enemy. Job had such a beautiful friendship with God before and now he feels that God is against him. He sees himself as the object of God's wrath. He pictures God as if God was a savage beast hunting him down and tearing apart him from limb by limb. Did you see that phrase there? It says there, he's taken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. It's like God is a big, huge gorilla that grabs Job by the neck and just shakes him within an inch of his own life. It would seem here that Job was wrestling with God just as intensely as Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord in Genesis chapter 32. And I would say that the similarity of the struggle, it teaches us something, given the difference in their character, right? (laughs) Jacob was an ungodly, fleshly man who needed to get slapped around by God a bit. But Job, completely different. Job struggled with God as a godly man. Let me say this shows us that even a godly man needs to be conquered or at least more conquered than he was before you notice what he says here too in verse 10 they gather together against me you know part of job's agony was was related to the idea that his entire struggle was so public other people could see it you know sometimes we can bear just about any agony as long as nobody else knows right but when it becomes public oh good heavens it pierces us right I think about this Jesus on the cross, right? Part of his tremendous humiliation was that it happened so publicly. That there were all of his enemies mocking him, laughing at him on the cross. I've sometimes thought about that. Would the atonement of Jesus have been any less precious if it would have been offered on the dark side of the moon where no man could see it? Well, no, it still would have atoned for our sins. But no, there was something important about God drawing the Son of God into our own humiliation. Other people could see this. They saw what was going on. And Job has to say in verse 12, I was at ease, but he shattered me. God assaulted Job as if he was in a street fight. He's taken me by the necks and he's shaken me to pieces. God was the the pitiless archer and Job was the target. He set me up for his target. God was the warrior who utterly slew Job. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. I have to say, if we just sort of hit the pause button right here for a moment, there is a sense in which Job is a prophetic picture of Jesus. Christ, the righteous one on the cross, who nevertheless became a target of God's righteous wrath, not because he deserved it. And listen, Job isn't undergoing this because he deserves it. But, but Job was undergoing this because it was in the good and greater plan of God to do so, and so was it for the Son of God on the cross. C- couldn't you see these words in Jesus as he hangs on the cross? He has set me up for his target. 
His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. That's what it felt like for the wrath of God the Father to be poured out upon God the Son on the cross. Here Job, thousands of years before the work of Jesus on the cross, is sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. We especially recognize this idea from Job uh, 16.10, where it says, They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. Can't you just read that and see Jesus being beaten about by the, the soldiers and the servants of the high priest? Verse 15. I've sewn sackcloth over my skin. I've laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death, although no violence is in my hands, and my prayer is pure. <laughs> Listen, uh, uh, this is how complete my grief is. You know, sackcloth, the thing they would put on in mourning? He goes, you know, I've just permanently sewed the sackcloth to my skin. That's how deep my, my misery is. And there's no violence in my hands. Did you notice he said that in verse 17? But my prayer is pure. You see Job still holding to the integrity of his righteousness. My prayer is pure. And now he's going to protest and create to creation. Verse 18. O earth, do not cover my blood. And let my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven. And my evidence is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears before God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Very interesting, this passage. In verse 18, Job pleads with the earth to not cover his blood. Job here begged the creation to not erase his life. He says, listen, if I die in this crisis, I at least want my blood to remain evident as a testimony of what I've undergone. And then now he says in verse 19, Surely even now my witness is in heaven. (laughs) Again, uh, you just have to be so blown. Job is so human. He's so me. He's so you. Just a couple of verses ago, he said, God, I feel like you hate me. I feel like I'm your target. I feel like you're a warrior attacking me without relent. And then what does he say in verse 19? Surely even now, my witness is in heaven. Do you sense the contradiction within Job? At one minute, he's low and feeling that God is his enemy. At the next minute, he's soaring up higher and at least lifts his gaze up to heaven and goes, no, Lord, despite how I feel, I believe that I have a witness in heaven. You see, he believed that God fought against him with all of his divine strength and skill. Nevertheless, at the same time, he also did believe that he had a righteous witness in heaven that would vindicate him as all the evidence was revealed. I mean, look at it in verse 20. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Job, I thought you just said that God was attacking you. How can you pour out tears to him? And Job would say, I don't know. He hates me. He loves me. He's rejecting me. I need him. I want him to look at me. I want him to look away from me. Look, Job has all of those contradictions of human nature that we see, especially in the person undergoing a deep, deep crisis. Verse 21 is powerful, isn't it? Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. What did Job need here? He recognized what he needed was a true advocate in heaven, someone to plead his case before God. 
do you see him looking forward without knowing the name Jesus Christ? Isn't he looking forward to the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Job anticipated the need that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who's both our mediator and our advocate in heaven before God the Father. Job knew that he needed a mediator, someone to bridge the gap between himself and a holy great God. By the way, Job also knew by faith that such a person existed and could be trusted. This made Job a believer in Jesus before Jesus ever walked the earth. He had faith in God's Messiah and mediator to come. In anticipation of the Messiah, Job essentially said this, and I'm quoting from John Trapp again. He said, Christ, who is God and man, will plead my cause with his Father. He can prevail because he's God equal to the Father. He will undertake it because he will be a man like to me. And so this reminds us that, you know, this faith in the, in the unseen, unknown, yet to be accomplished work of Jesus, it was available to Job. Can I just say how much more available it is to us? How much more? Do you know about God's provision than Job ever did? How much less reason do we have for despair and discouragement than Job ever had? Notice how it concludes this chapter, verse 22. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. You see, Job would not live long enough to see his longing fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but, but he yet he would still be comforted by the anticipation of that fulfillment. Now, chapter 17, with which we'll conclude tonight. Job is going to direct a complaint here, both against heaven and earth. Verse 1 of chapter 17. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Are you getting the rhythm of Job here? The rhythm of Job... Low, soaring up to a height of faith, and then seemingly crashing right down again. You know, we, we get all excited when we see these, these, these uh, expressions of faith from Job. Job, you're looking for the mediator. You want God to come and plead your case. You're looking to heaven for that mediator to plead your case. Oh, Job, it's all better now, right? You, you fixed it. You solved it. Listen, it was solved for about five minutes for Job, and then he sunk back into despair. Okay, can't we identify with this? I mean, we, we, want, we, we want it to be, oh, that one principle will just fix everything, right? Oh, my whole life was crashing about me, and then, you know, I just heard the, And listen, sometimes it's like that, isn't it? Praise God when it's like that. But, but many times, you know, climbing out of that pit takes a while. And you end up taking a few steps up and falling a few more back, and, but you eventually make it out. So Job just fell back down a few more steps. Can I read those two very depressing verses again? Verses what my spirit is broken, my days are extinguished, the grave is ready for me. He looks around to his friends, are not mockers with me? And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Well, good morning to you too, Job. Yeah, I mean, he's just down in the depressions of the despair again. Verse 3. Now put down a pledge for me and with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden their heart from understanding. Therefore you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eye of his children shall fail. 
It seems that Job was speaking to God in these verses, verses 3, 4, and 5. At first he says, put down a pledge for me with yourself. Now that God, make a deal with me here. Who will shake hands with me? God, come into an agreement with me. I, I, I like the NIV translation of Job chapter 17, verse 3. Listen to this from the NIV. Give me, O God, the pledge you demand. Who else will put up security for me? The idea is that Job cried out to God and said, You will have to set this right, God. It's beyond me to do it. And this was especially meaningful in light of the main idea of Job's friends. The main idea of Job's friends was that it was his responsibility to set things right. Job, you got yourself into this mess by your sin, right? That's what his friend said. It's your job to set this right. And what does Job say in reply? He says, my friends don't understand this situation. God, you're going to have to set this right. By the way, in a small way, we can say that Job grasped the whole tone of salvation under the new covenant, that God has made the atonement and the reconciliation. We do not have to do it ourselves. But look at what he says about what God has done in verse 4. You have hidden their heart from understanding. God, you know what? You can speak to the hearts of these three jerks who are with me and you could give them a clue why don't you do it then he says therefore you will not exalt them verse 5 he who speaks flattery to his friends even the eyes of his children will fail i, I think with verse 5 he's trying to justify his own harsh words against his friends you know somebody would say listen job you know aren't you being a little mean to these guys you know they they're your friends at least they're here for you and job would say listen i'm not i'm not here to flatter them i'm going to speak the truth no matter how i i i have it come to me Starting out verse six. Wow, this is this is heavy here. This he, he he speaks of what he feels God has done to him. But he has made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadows. Upright men are astonished at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite, yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. Job here spoke with the power of poetry, really, of his own humiliation and how greatly he had been humbled. It reminds us of this universal principle of the humiliation of man, he has made me a byword among the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. You, know, you understand what an esteemed position Job once had in the community? How the Bible says in chapter 1, he was one of the great men of the East, the greatest of the men of the East. I mean, there was, he, he was the, well, he was a celebrity. He was rich. He was famous. He was good. I, I mean, he was just, he was, he was the man. And now, people would come along and spit in his face. He's become a byword. Yeah, yeah. don't be like Job. Boy, I hope your world doesn't crash around you like Job's did. You see, Job's own humiliation was so complete that he could say, upright men are astonished at this. Onlookers found it hard to believe that this righteous man had been so seriously afflicted. You know, our... Our own humiliation is inevitable. The frailty of humanity and the fallen nature of this world combine together to make the humiliation of man certain, but it comes in a lot of different ways. You, you may be humiliated because of your own sin. 
You may be humiliated because of your own weakness. You may be humiliated by some circumstance beyond your control. Or you may be humiliated by what other people put upon you. But listen, at some way, at some stage in this life, you're going to experience some of what Job talked about here in the humiliation of man. And very thankfully, we can say that the humiliation of humanity has its model and sympathy in the life of Jesus. He climbed the ladder down from heaven's glory all the way to the lowest of human experience, right? To not just humility as a man, but death, and not just death, but the death of a cross. And Jesus did this to give both meaning and dignity to the humiliation of man. And so therefore now our humiliation becomes transformed. We're thankful now that the humiliation we we can experience, it serves as a gateway to grace. Do you understand that? What does it say three times in the scriptures? In Proverbs 3, in James 4, and in 1 Peter 5, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Are you humiliated tonight? You're in a great place to receive grace. But then he says in verse 6 again, he's made me a byword of the people. You know what I would emphasize there? He. He has made me a byword of the people. Job, who did this to you? Job would point up to heaven. He did it. He did it to me. Job recognized his own humiliation, but he also proclaimed the sovereignty of God. He didn't find the cause of his crisis in blind fate or even in human cruelty. He understood that if he had been made a byword of the people and a man in whose face men spit, it was because God had made him so. I find it interesting. Job and his friends, they didn't agree on a whole lot, did they? But they did agree on this. Now they disagreed on the reasons why God had made him so. But everyone saw the sovereign and the great hand of God behind it. Understanding this can help us, though it was obviously difficult for Job and for us in similar circumstances. But God has a good and a loving plan, even in allowing our humiliation. I know what you might say. You might say, but listen, David, doesn't it say that Satan prompted these attacks? Well, absolutely he did. Satan took Job's children away. Satan took all of Job's wealth away. Satan touched his hand in some way that we can't completely understand against Job's body and took away his health. We understand that, but we also have to say, don't we honestly, that Satan could only do it at the express allowance of God. Matter of fact, Satan wanted to do it long before, but God wouldn't let him. It was only when God said, okay, I'll let you do this, that Satan was able to do it. So he... He understood the humiliation of God, excuse me, the humiliation of man. He understood the sovereignty of God. And yet in verse 9, look, yet the righteous will hold to his way and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. In this section, Job added a final emphatic point declaring the victory of the righteous. Even in his crisis, he had flashes of faith that lit up the night of his misery. You see, the victory will come. He'll hold to his way. And he who has clean hands will become stronger and stronger. Isn't it beautiful? It's as if Job understood, I'm going to come out of this okay. It's going to be a progression. It's not going to happen all once. I'm going to go stronger and stronger. It's not going to be a snap of the finger and everything's better. But there will be an eventual victory of the righteous. Isn't it beautiful? Job, again, it's one of these flashes in the midst of Job's very dark night. Verse 10, shut out the lights again. 
You know, it was like being in a dark room and a flashbulb goes off for a camera and everything's lit up for a moment and then it's pitch black again. Ready to go back into the darkness? Verse 10. But please come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart, they change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, where that is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? Here Job throws down the rhetorical challenge to his friends once more. He's insulting them as they insulted him. I can't find one wise man among you. And then he says in verse 11, just lapsing into depression and discouragement all over again. My days are past and my purposes are broken off. Job now accepted that his good years and his strong years were behind him. And he anticipated the quick death that he hoped for. But, but, but now he says, well, man, listen, that's not going to happen. Maybe I'm not going to have that quick death. Now he's thinking, maybe I'm just going to have a progressive loss of strength and the ability until I simply perish. He thought of his approaching death. Do you see there in verse 12? They change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. You see, he thought of his approaching death and he took comfort in it. His approaching death would transform his current night into day. The corruption of the grave would be as close to him as a family member, right? Well, he, here's my father, the, the corruption, the decay of the grave. Here's the, the worm that'll eat my body. Oh, you're as close to me as my mother or my sister. You see here, he's saying, you guys are friends to me. I just want to die and to vanish. And then verse 15, where then is my hope? You see, Job could wish for death. He could wish to just have the worms eat him up and corruption and decay to destroy his body. He could wish for all that, but he knew there was no hope in that. This comfort of the grave did not sit well with Job. He recognized that it was a slender and a frail hope to trust in the grave. He could not be confident that hope would follow him down to Sheol and give him rest. So Job concludes this, this chapter and this speech before Bildad is going to speak again in chapter 18. He concludes it with a conflicted hope. He's wishing for death, but he's not satisfied or confident in that hope. You know what he really wanted? He really wanted God to resolve the whole matter. But at this point, at this point in the book, Job has given up on that. Now again, we talked about Job going up and down. We talked about Job being full of contradictions. No, he's going to come back to that hope. He will. But as we leave chapter 17, he's given up. God, this will make no sense unless you resolve it. And I guess you're not going to... I guess all I can do is die. It's, it's a bad place Job is in. But you know, all I can say is when we come to the end of the book, it's all different. As low and as dark as we leave Job in chapter 17, he really does break through to light. I almost feel bad. I feel like I'm throwing a, a burden upon you tonight as I leave you here with Job in the midst of this kind of depression. 
Where then is my hope? Right? Great cheery words to leave a Bible study on, right? But I guess that there is a cheer in it, knowing the end of the whole story. That, that you can be in a place just as low and hopeless and dark as Job, and God can redeem it. I mean, it can, the, the hopelessness can seem just as real to you as it seemed to Job. And yet God can bring his glorious resurrection power in the midst of it. That's exactly what happened with Job, and, and we'll follow up more as we make our way through the book. Let, let's pray. Father, we, we know that Job looked ahead prophetically to Jesus Christ, but Lord, what a better place that you give us to look back upon the finished and revealed work of Jesus. And Lord, we're just so grateful that tonight we have reason for confidence and hope and comfort that Job never had. I mean, Lord, we have, have seen others go through far smaller things than Job ever went through and give up far sooner than, than Job ever did. And yet, Lord, we, we have so much more reason for confidence and hope than Job ever did. So, Father, please give us your grace. If you have us in this season of humiliation, Lord, then let us put our trust in you. Let us receive the grace that you give to the humble and see your bright light shine in the midst of whatever darkness we have. Thank you for your word and thank you for your work through men like Job. In Jesus' name, amen.